Welcome to Real Estate Unscripted, where each week we connect no-nonsense, let's-get-it-done realtors and lenders from across the country who want to grow our businesses and stay motivated with timely topics and experts in our field. I'm your host, Marjorie Adam. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to Real Estate Unscripted. I am super excited today to have a good friend of mine, Phoebe. Phoebe, say hi. Hi. So everyone, this is Phoebe Fliakos, and let me tell you about her. First, good friend of mine, hangs out with us a lot. She and Chris, good friends of ours, the four of us, my husband, Fleep as well. We go and do things together. They come over to our house. That's all fantastic. You're all like, that's nice. But here's the thing. So Phoebe is a licensed psychotherapist, right? So she has training to work with people with different issues. So Phoebe, how did you get into being a therapist? Well, I actually taught in boarding schools for four years in the late 90s. And I got the job at my first boarding school up in Lake Placid, New York, because I was friends with the headmaster's daughter. (laughs) Excellent. Connections. (laughs) And that's right. Networking. And what I found was that I was not a fantastic teacher, but what I loved was being on dorm duty and sitting with kids and talking to them and listening to them about their lives and kind of sorting through their difficulties with them. I really enjoyed that level of relationship. And that led me to go to grad school to get my MSW in late 1900s to 2001. Okay. And then you went into private practice. I think you told me part-time in 2006 and then full-time Phoebe therapy starting in about 2012. That's when I hung a shingle. Nice. I thought it was really important because some people might be like, huh, considering a lot of the listeners are realtors and lenders, and I don't think it matters. But I think that's what's really important is that most people are not super comfortable about vocalizing or talking about the need for therapy. I think that anything that deals with any sort of mental health or anxiety or depression or whatever it may be is almost taboo to most. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that there's a fear that unlike other organs in the body that fail or have difficulty, if it's of the brain, there's some belief that we should be able to find our way through it on our own, that we're somehow failing or being weak or being obtuse if we can't find our way out of a problem that we're having emotionally or psychologically. And so there's a lot of shame that gets wrapped up in that. I agree because I think, well, now there's some people that are super private that don't share I have diabetes or a physical ailment, but I think it's much more common for people to discuss that. And I think you're right, this shame that we should have all over ourselves. We say, I should fight this. Why is this so difficult? And it's almost beating yourself up for something that frankly, you have no control over, right? This is not something you generally can control. It's something chemical going on inside of you and people don't think of it that way. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just talking about it out in the world, it's getting help for it. So even someone who's a little more discreet about a diagnosis of diabetes is going to go to a doctor to get help with insulin. So I think a big part of it is thinking that going for assistance with the issue is a statement of weakness or is a statement of badness. And I just don't agree with that thinking. I don't either. I mean, I actually think it's strength and it's it's not wanting to be there and taking the action to do something about it. And I think you're right, fear as well as shame. And I think we need to really do everything we can amongst ourselves, but in society as well, to not have that be a perception that it's actually a strength and really a need for people to connect and discuss 
what's going on. And we talked a little offline and said it's trending that people are shifting perspective that we can talk about it. It is something people talk about a little more. Still, most people really kind of hide it. Yeah, it's true. And I think it's the kind of thing where if you haven't been exposed to it, we talked about this too, there's some contempt prior to investigation, like that belief that somehow it's a lot more difficult or impossible than it ends up being, which is essentially what we're doing right now, just sitting in a room, having a conversation. I love, and I think contempt prior to investigation, you said that you can apply this to just about anything. But when you really think about it, you're exactly right. It's sort of this somewhere someone did something and it didn't work or no, I'm not going to do that. That's not for me. And it's like, oh, when there's just not one size fits all with anything, including therapy. So we talked a little as well as about kind of issues that you see, right? And what are the things that you see? You said, obviously, we'll make a big caveat. You are not just like, I am not all realtors. You are by all means, not all therapists. Right. So this is more representative of what you've seen. But what are the biggest issues that you see or things that you work with people with? Yeah. So I would say generally what walks into a therapy office most of the time is depression, anxiety. What's been true for me, and I think there's this strange magnetic attraction thing I have with people with substance abuse issues is that often people will call me and say they're struggling with depression, anxiety, and then they get in for their first session and will reveal that what's also going on is some kind of substance abuse or addiction. And that has been very prevalent in my practice. The other thing that I work with a lot and have most formal training in is trauma. So I work with a lot of PTSD. Okay. So it's interesting also when you think about alcohol, drug abuse, so alcohol, drug abuse that can cause depression and anxiety, but also anxiety and depression that can cause alcohol and drug use. Oh yeah. It's such a loop and it's really hard to know at first what's what, but that's absolutely right. That those end up with a lot of interplay. And I would argue too, post-traumatic stress disorder, the more we're learning about that increases likelihood of addictions by like thousands of times. So often there is a trauma foundation when people are dealing with addictions. Yeah. And we talked about people that feel guilt, guilt coming from, I mean, you're depressed and anxious with guilt, you have trauma or grief. So you talked also about a lot of unresolved grief. And I think that is true. That is true. I think that we don't have a real health in our culture for working through grief. It's very prescriptive and time limited. And there's an assumption that after the rituals are over, people should kind of dust themselves off and get back to it. And as a result of that, I think there's a lot that just gets stuffed down for years, for decades, when sometimes people will come into therapy and I'll be taking their history and they'll talk about a loss in early life and say, but that was so long ago. And the more we unpack it, the more we think they never said anything they needed to say about it. So a lot of it is just unexpressed grief because of the expectation of moving on after a loss. It is hard. I mean, I lost mom and anyone who's been through grief, it is a surprise you're doing so well this day and then it's a wave and then it just hits. And also we process through it different. It is true, right? People are like, oh, you're back to work now. Everything's fine. It's like, no, I'm back to work. Doesn't mean Uh, it's just all gone. So I agree with you. I think grief and loss is something that we definitely as a society have not really 
come to grips with or we're uncomfortable with or whatever it may be. And so I think that, and then also stress, let's talk about stress. Cause I think that's a huge issue that many people face. Yeah. Stress is a, another one of those that I think people have moral judgments about in themselves, like think they shouldn't be as stressed as they are, or they feel ungrateful if they're stressed because they think my life is too good to experience stress. But I learned about the term stress as being initially a scientific term from, I think the 1900s, which is basically, it's the amount of torque you can put on a metal before the metal snaps. And so it doesn't matter why the torque is there. It doesn't have to be horrific. It could just be that there's too much and that it's really hard to know when it's too much and then to acknowledge it. For a lot of people, I think it's just about not accepting that they might be under too much torque. Right. And then what to do about it from thinking that certain things like meditation or yoga or just saying no to some things, which again, sound overly simple, right? You're just like, well, just say no. Oh, okay. Well, I'm good. I meditated. It's gone. No, it's process and time as well. But you also mentioned adjustment disorders. Yeah. Adjustment disorder is basically a statement about life circumstances being overwhelming to the point you can write a diagnosis code that says, This person just needs to talk about the overwhelmingness of things. And really that is, in the end, that's what people need to do is have a connection around the overwhelmingness of things. So you find that when you come into an office and kind of leave all of these stories in the office with another person, hopefully you leave a little lighter and with a little less of that. But I think until a lot of people come into therapy, they have a lot of secrets about all of the things that are bothering them. And I think that there's a saying in recovery circles that we're as sick as our secrets. So carrying around a bunch of things we never tell anyone or tell the wrong people and they can't hold it means that we stay really, really weighed down by those things. Yeah, I agree. So here's a question. We didn't talk about this earlier, but this is something I wanted to know. So if you're a therapist and you hear basically people leaving their stress on you eight hours a day, How do you then not feel the weight of that? And how do you let it go? How do you work through that? So that's a great question. It's sort of, I mean, I think the simple answer is that it's an acquired skill. I did not know how to leave it at the door when I first was training. And what happened is I got really depressed. And I realized in order to be really effective when I was in the office, I had to find ways to very decisively leave the office. And and I just got better at kind of having a transition of a few minutes after my last client leaves and before I walk out the door of kind of transitioning into a quieter space. For me, the commute from Charlottesville to Western Albemarle has been really useful. And a lot of times I spend just quiet in the car transitioning and then I get home and I move my body. But that's a big thing. And that's a thing that I always recommend to clients is I pretty much have to have a dog my entire life because I need an excuse (laughs) to not just sit on the couch because I'm tired and instead to go walk on trails. And there actually was a study that came out a few years ago about the value of walking in the woods for 20 minutes in terms of lowering 
blood pressure and really reducing stress and increasing general well-being. So my things are transitioning my body into a state of activeness. And for me, quiet at the end of a day of a lot of input output is really important as well. And I say this, but here's also why. So we're not therapists, but honestly, realtors and lenders. So some days, of course, it's all just rainbows and fun. It is. You're just like, this was all great. (laughs) But some days the world implodes. So last week, one of my favorite, dearest clients, I've known her for like 25 years. She's like 89. Her darling husband died. And it was a very heavy meeting, right? It's a very heavy transition. And so... While we're not therapists, we do deal with life crisis and money crisis and divorce. So it's the same thing. So people listening, I asked you that really specifically this time we didn't talk about before because it's very much the same for us. When we go home, if we're going to not dump our day onto our kids and our spouses, it is whether it be listening to the 80s on Mach 10 or super quiet. Yes, super quiet and going for a walk and really detaching from that day. Because I think a lot of us, we're still on the phone. So for the realtor lenders, we're still on our phone. I'll be right there, honey, like 20 more minutes in the garage, walk inside. And it's like, there's been no decompression. We've carried work home. And I think it's important for other people to think about too, like the 20 minute walk or, or the quiet or letting that day go also matters for anyone that does any sort of counseling through whatever their job is. Yeah. Any input output. I think transitions are huge. I try to pay really close attention to transitions between different roles. I do want to say too, yeah, I think there are similarities in the nature of like the intensity of input output that you deal with. And it's probably worth noting for all sorts of people that vicarious trauma is a thing. Like I've had people from numerous professions come to me who weren't the actual victim of a trauma, but through involvement with somebody who was traumatized, feel the effects of that. And that I can imagine is very true among realtors. I know there are a lot of happy circumstances of people buying and selling houses, but there are also incredibly tragic circumstances. And you're the container for a lot of that while trying to do transaction. Right. Which is why talking to someone like you, but also having my transition and input out. I just wanted to make sure to point that out. I didn't want it to get lost. Yeah. That they're like, oh, this is what Phoebe does. Well, this is what I think all of us need to do. And even transitioning from home in the morning, right? Like it's also getting my mindset into now I'm at work. Yep. So I think that change is important. So let's talk about disconnection. Cause I do think It's a very real thing. It has been for a while. COVID was a big part. We'll get into that first. But when we were offline a little bit, it was like disconnection and also technology, which frankly is the ultimate disconnector. Tell me what you think about that. Well, first of all, it does create and allow for connection that otherwise we couldn't have. But the two-dimensionality of technology can also be extremely disconnecting and isolating. And it's a way that like the engagement in it is a way that we sort of sell ourselves short of actual eye contact and with a person. And we talked about that with regard to COVID, that COVID changed, obviously, the landscape for all things all over the world. It was a really intense transition for therapy as a thing. So I think there are a lot of therapists out there like me who were absolute techno idiots who within days had to figure out how to be therapists online. And for me, that meant learning an entire new format of 
therapy. I didn't tell you this before, but it was interesting in the very beginning of COVID, I only used my phone. I had an old computer. So I did like seven hours a day of therapy sessions looking at a phone. It was really difficult. Yeah. And then I got a computer and I started finding my way into it. It was life-saving for me in my career. There was not an option to practice in the office. It wasn't safe. It didn't make sense. But what it did for us was hold a connection. It wasn't deep therapy in a lot of cases. In a lot of cases, I was the only conversation that my clients had during the day. In a number of cases, I was talking to people who had not had physical contact with anyone for months and then over a year. And we would just chat. It definitely changed who I was as a therapist. I was much more vulnerable. Like people would come in to session on telemedicine and be terrified about what was going to happen in the world. And I had nothing. I knew no more than they did. We were all in it together. So in a lot of ways, the pandemic really increased the humanity of the therapeutic connection. It was very clear that we were just humans trying to find our way through. It it was a tough adjustment, but I actually really had incredible and long relationships with clients over the course of the pandemic, some of whom I met on the computer. And there are some I've never seen in 3D. We're the same way. I have clients that have closed on a house. And now if we can see them in town or have a happy hour, it's like, wow. So it was very different instead of the drive around the car, go to lunch, see each other that many times. I mean, it was absolutely, I mean, for everyone, right? It shifted identity of everything. But thankfully, therapy could go on and think about going to the doctor. I'm like, well, I'm not quite sure how you're going to look down my throat, but (laughs) we've got to figure it out. So we talk about connections, right? So I think that's the biggest thing that was missed, building connections again. And then the isolation, COVID was also not just isolation, but you were talking about it was grief. I mean, you had many clients who lost family members. And so this grief that happened through COVID, it was certainly isolation. Look, I mean, even in my own house. So there were the four of us together. But I had Alex trying to graduate from art college in a bedroom and Lucas trying to have his junior year in his room. You know, all of us trying to be on devices and just even though we were in the same room. But I think it also look, marriages got strong, but a lot of marriages were like, nah, because there was no separation. I mean, it really just brought out a little of everything, right? Well, there was something really profound about the bubble too. For people who were in families or in small social bubbles, you had a huge percentage of your social experience with a very small group of people and it exposed the good and the bad. Yeah. Well, you were in my bubble, right? So we have a fire pit, right? Yeah, so you and Chris pit. would come outside and it would be freezing, right? Cause it was February, it was March, it'd be cold. Yep. So we would light a fire and hang out outside. Cause we were very distanced, not only for each other, but my mom who was super sick and my dad and it's like in your family, right? Like we just had to be super careful for additional family members. So yeah, the bubble, but thank God for the bubble. You know, those people that you saw were very much your lifelines, right? It was very much like, yay, people. Yeah. And short of the bubble, thank God for technology that kept your business, you know, going and kept my business going and kept us available for people who really needed to 
be doing what they were doing with us. So coming out of COVID, you've got a lot then of, well, either people developed social anxiety or they realized they'd always had it. Let's talk about that. It's been both and and sometimes not easy to determine. I think that because there was such an interruption of group gatherings, people are more vocal now about the discomfort they're feeling in groups. And I'm not positive it's born of the pandemic. It's possible that they just are now so clear that it's true that they're not denying it anymore. I'm sure it runs the gamut. But people have been a lot more unsure of how to interact, how to deal with group situations, parties, deal with stories about infection. And that's a whole new line that we live in now. But I think that people are more willing to comment on the difficulty that they experience socially as a result of that, the shut-in. Yeah. I went into an airport the first time and it was absolutely almost overwhelming because it was like I had been around three people. (laughs) And now you're again in a mass, you wouldn't have thought for me, I wouldn't have thought about it like a movie, right? Right. Being in this massively crowded room was just, whoa, because it had been so long since that had happened. I think also you got all these kids that were in high school and college and aren't the best communicators because of phone anyway. And then here comes even longer that they're not around people. So I think that there's going to be some long lasting benefits from that kind of not being connected socially at different ages too. So I think we're coming clearly out of it. Well, I will say one of the things we didn't talk about before that's emerged is I wouldn't say germophobia, but certainly a different level of alarm around contagion. People used to come in like hacking up a lung and they'd be like, I think it's just allergies. But now it's like, when I hear people coughing that way, I'm just like, ah, man. Right. (laughs) Well, now you'll be at the grocery store and I'll be like, I sneeze. I can't. If yeah. I sneeze, I'm a pariah at Harris Teeter, right? Like right. people will be like, get out. But same with right. me. I'm like, you cough, don't come anywhere near me. So it is this heightened awareness of things. Like you'd be kind of like, ugh, but yeah. now it's like, whoa. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see. I mean, obviously who knows what comes next. Okay. So we've talked about a lot of these things. So let's say I'm hearing this and it's really just resonating with me. It's time. I really do think it's time for me, whatever my reason, and, and certainly not There can be a gamut of them. There's no right and wrong, but I think it would benefit me to have some therapy. So help me. What do I do? I really want to connect with someone. What are some steps I can take? So there are a few ways to go. One is really simply to go to your primary care physician, general practitioner, and just ask if that person has any ideas about therapists in the area who they'd recommend. Another is to have the courage to ask friends what they know of, who they've heard of, who they see or who they know of that a friend has seen or a spouse has seen and start by calling those folks. And finally, if you need to use insurance, you can call your insurance company and ask them for a list of practitioners in the area. That list is almost certainly going to be a little overwhelming because it's a long list and not everyone's a psychotherapist. But after a few calls, you can kind of find your way in. I think word of mouth is really, really helpful because just finding somebody who's clearly been tested in some way is just really useful. And the other thing I'll say is in the Charlottesville area, a few notes, I think this is true elsewhere too, but in Charlottesville, I know it to be true. Don't be discouraged if you make a few calls and people are full. 
And if people are full, ask them if they have ideas about other people, because therapists have had very, very full caseloads for several years, even before COVID in Charlottesville. And the other thing I would say is don't be discouraged if you go into a session or a few sessions with someone and it doesn't feel like a fit. It's not about finding the best therapist. It's about finding the right therapist. And there's something about the dance between any two people. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's an acquired taste, but know as a person going to get the help that just because that first point of contact didn't work out doesn't mean it's never going to work out. It's worth sticking with it. Agreed. It can be worth getting on a waiting list if you feel like this is a good fit for me, or maybe they're busy. It's get on a waiting list and and not giving up, right? I think we all, we're all pretty good at, oh, I made a phone call. They didn't call me back, right? Stick to it. You're going to have to maybe call a few people. We don't yeah. all connect with everyone. And that connection with a therapist is yeah. super important to feeling less vulnerable and that you can make the steps that you need to. So I really wanted to cover this because I talked to a lot of people. You have those surface relationships with them. And so they're not going to talk about it. You get to know them a little more. They might kind of throw out a question. And then if you can really connect with them, it's like, hey, I'm having the struggle. I'm on the outside, act like everything's perfect, but I really got this going on. And to me, it's like, let's call it the strength and understanding that it's such a beneficial thing and it's not a weakness and that people are there for you that want to help you in any way. And look, work can be great and everything's great, but you have this issue at home or issue internally, right? Or this depression or anxiety. And I think the biggest thing, like you said, is we feel like, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. And it's like, well, it's not something you can control. And it's not something you have to experience alone. I think the more we say those things out loud that we're really scared to say, the more we realize that we're all connected, if not the exact experience through a variation on the experience and just the general human experience. I mean, the reason that I'm a therapist is that I truly value the connection that therapy provides. And I think there's just so much to be gained from telling the truth about what hurts and then finding your way, not away from it, but with it and then through it. I agree. So really the moral as we're ending this is everyone needs a Phoebe. You can't have Phoebe, but there are lots of Phoebe's, right? Like find your Phoebe is really kind of what we're going to make sure it's find your Phoebe. No, it's true. I mean, I think commit to that's something that's really important to you and that you're going to confide in someone, you're going to talk to a friend, you're going to get a recommendation, go to your primary care physician, really say, I really am going to understand that just like anything else I might be going through, this is something that that someone's here for me. That's right. And it has a beginning, middle and end. So most people aren't in therapy forever and ever. I mean, there's a way that therapy works to help make therapy not as important after a while. It's just about going through it. Well, Phoebe, thank you so much for joining Real Estate Unscripted. You rock. I appreciate that you took this time. I'm really grateful to have the time with you, Marjorie, and I adore you. So thanks for doing this work. I love your podcast, and I feel really honored to be in the conversation with you. Well, thank you. I can't wait. So we'll see you at the fire pit soon. Yeehaw! Real Estate Unscripted is sponsored by Alcova Mortgage. Alcova is committed to simplifying the mortgage process. Check out the tools we offer to realtors and homebuyers at alcova.com slash realtors. Alcova Mortgage, equal housing lender, NMLS ID number 40508, org. Before we go, please show us some love by subscribing on your listening platform of choice and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Make sure you share this with your friends and be sure to listen in next week. Until then, this is Marjorie Adam. Don't forget to check out the show notes for a recap. This podcast was made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support.